This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello, good evening everyone. Uh, welcome to this evening at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is James Runcie, and uh, welcome to the Frederick Hood Memorial Lecture sponsored by Walter Scott and Partners. Frederick Hood was one of their most gifted employees, active in the arts, debating and drama, as well as business and finance. But he was killed tragically in an avalanche in 2008. Since then, it's become a tradition to hold an event in his honor. And this event will end traditionally with the presentation of a fedora, because Fred used to wear a fedora, in his honor. So there's a three minutes of eccentricity at the end of this event, which I hope Fred will be looking down on with uh, benevolence. <laughs> um, tonight's event is about the founding principles of international law. Is it possible to develop a universal law of mankind? How much can the international community intervene in the affairs of sovereign states, and when should it do so? Is there a difference between judging crimes in a wartime context and crimes committed before that war began? The way, for example, by which killing may be a legitimate practice in war but becomes murder in peacetime? And when does multiple killing become mass murder or if it is targeted against a specific group, genocide? What is the nature of individual responsibility? Can an individual who acts for the state claim immunity from, indi from individual criminal liability? Can he or she be tried for breaking an international law which has only recently been formulated and of which they are unaware? Does international law automatically supersede national law and convey moral superiority? If so, who says so? When and how should it act? And how does the international community develop new laws for new crimes? Is the commitment to the idea of international justice as strong today as it was, say, in 1945? These, it's important because these questions found their first major focus in the Nuremberg trials of 1945 after the persecution of Jews by the Nazis in the Second World War, described by Philippe Sands in his book East-West Street on the origins of genocide and crimes against humanity. Philippe is professor of law at University College London and a practicing barrister at Matrix Chambers. He frequently appears before international courts, including the International Criminal Court and the World Court in The Hague, and has recently been involved in many of the most important cases of recent years, including Pinochet, Congo, Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Iraq, and Guantanamo. I've asked Philippe to provide a brief introduction to the people who populate this story and to introduce the subject before we talk in more detail about the implications and the consequences. Please welcome Philippe Sands. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, James. Thank you to the Book Festival for inviting me, and thank you for coming this evening. Just, I'm going to be brief, uh, and then we go over to conversation. I begin by uh, re recognizing Frederick Hood. It's a tremendous privilege uh, for me to be part of this event uh, this evening. I didn't know Frederick Hood. I've just spent some uh, time with members of his family and colleagues at Walter Scott, the firm with which he worked, on uh, Charlotte Square, and I express my deep thanks to them. And it's plain from talking to... Uh, his family and his former colleagues, that this was uh, an individual with special qualities, extraordinary, one of his colleagues described him, a gem, a Renaissance man, someone who touched uh, on various different areas, someone who very obviously uh, was a beloved individual and left in the 28 years that he lived uh, a very strong mark. And that sense of um, powerful individuals is one that resonates for me because it lies at the heart of the book uh, that I have written, that I spent seven years writing, East uh, West Street. I grew up in a family uh, with an English dad and a French mum. Uh, I knew also that my mother had been born in Vienna in 1938 and that she had left Vienna sometime 
uh, soon after because she was Jewish. I didn't know the circumstances in which she had left, uh, and I didn't know the circumstances in which her father, my grandfather, uh, had managed to escape from Vienna to Paris. I knew my grandfather very well. He lived uh, until 1997. Uh, but one of the uh, aspects of growing up in that family, as it is with many families who've been through events of that kind in trauma and conflict situations, is that a sort of silence descends. You are encouraged as a child, my brother and I, not to open certain doors. And out of respect for your parents and your grandparents, you don't open uh, those doors. And that's how it was until 2010. I then received unexpectedly an invitation to give a lecture in an obscure city in the western Ukraine. The city is today called Lviv. It used to be called Lvov when it was in Poland and before that Lemberg when it was in the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. Uh, and I was asked to give a talk on the subjects that I work on crimes against humanity and genocide. James has mentioned I've been involved in a significant number of cases that deal with those concepts. Would you come and talk to us about your cases and the books that you've written on that subject? And so I accepted, but the real reason I accepted uh, was that my grandfather was born in the city of Lemberg. That I knew. Uh, and I went to Lemberg for the first time in October 2010. But in the summer before that, in preparing my lecture, I made uh, a couple of discoveries that truly surprised me. Uh, I discovered that the man who invented the concept of crimes against humanity, Hirsch Lauterpacht, professor of international law at Cambridge University, originated from the city of Lemberg, Lviv. Indeed, he had been a student at the very law school that had invited me to give the lecture, but the law school was not aware of that fact. And then I discovered, even more remarkably, that the man who invented the concept of genocide, Raphael Lemkin, had also attended the same law school. Uh, and the university was unaware of that fact. How remarkable, I thought, that the two individuals who created concepts which are part of my everyday working life came from that same city. And from those doors, more doors were opened. I came to spend a lot of time in the city uh, of Lviv. I've come to love the city of Lviv. I've come to explore the origins of my own family and the origins of crimes against humanity and genocide. And then I completed, uh, if you like, the book by coming across a fourth man on the other side of the equation. Uh, his name was Hans Frank. He was Governor General of Occupied Poland. He was Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer. And it was he who arrived in the city of Lemberg in August 1942 and issued the instruction that would lead to the killings of the entire families of Lauterpacht, Lemkin, and my grandfather. That was the point that I discovered we had in common. So I learned about these men, and I learned in particular that individuals can make a difference, that Lauterpacht and Lemkin had invented these concepts almost out of thin air. But even more, in spending six and a half years writing the book, which is populated with the most remarkable array of characters, I came across truly inspirational individuals. Elsie Tilney, Miss E.M. Tilney. I find a piece of paper in my grandfather's papers uh, with her name. Uh, I discover that this is the evangelical Christian missionary from Norwich who saved my mother's life, who carried her as a one-year-old child from Vienna to Paris in the summer of 1939. Inca Katz, the only surviving member of Lauterpacht's family, uh, his niece, uh, who as a 12-year-old in Lemberg in August 1942, saw first her mother and then her father being carted away and survived on her own as a 12-year-old child for the next three years. And Robbie Dundas, the 21-year-old daughter of Lord Justice Geoffrey Lawrence, uh, who was the presiding judge at Nuremberg and who worked at Bletchley and who came to the Nuremberg trial in uh, the summer uh, of, in the winter of 1945 and interviewed Yodel and Keitel and stayed with her father uh, and her mother who were living in Nuremberg 
to watch two weeks of the trial for herself. These three extraordinary women were amongst those I came across in researching this book. And it explained to me that individuals really can make a difference, including on the biggest issues that we face. And I think that provides a point of connection uh, with Frederick Hood uh, and with this event, amidst the mass of issues that we all face in our daily lives and in relation to the big, huge, great issues of the day, individuals can make a very real and significant difference. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Philippe. I want to start by talking to you about another individual, which is the teacher of these two men, Dr. Julius Makarovic, who taught both Hirsch Lauterpacht and Raphael Lemkin in Lemberg, uh, and who inspired thinking about these two, what to do, how to, leak, how to legislate uh, against appalling actions. But I think it would be good. We're going to talk about ideas first and then people, if that's okay. And then please do ask some questions. But let's just make a distinction first between crimes against humanity and genocide. So one, Hirsch Lauterpacht argues prosecuting crimes against humanity. Raphael Lemkin, genocide. Why is that distinction important? Just to park the question for a moment, to put it in context. Imagine yourselves back in 1939 and the situation as it then pertained as a matter of international law, putting aside domestic laws, domestic constitutional laws and criminals, just focusing on international law. As international law stood in 1939, a state, a government, was entirely free to treat its citizens, its nationals, as it wished. If a state wanted to kill half its population, there was no rule of international law that stopped that. That The individuals were treated as the property of the state. And what the Second World War brought about was a very significant change of consciousness and policy, namely international legal constraints have to be placed on uh, the acts and the barbarity of states. And two ways were thought about for dealing with that. The first way was to imagine that every individual, every single one of you in this room, because you are human beings, is the holder of individual rights that cannot be violated in any circumstances. And they provide what is now known as human rights, respect for your inherent rights, not because of your nationality, not because you're a member of a group, not because you're male, female, transgender, whatever, but because you are a human being. That gives you rights under international law. And that was the idea of Hirsch Lauterpacht, who really is one of the inventors of the modern system of human rights, which is incorporated into the idea of crimes against humanity, the protection of individuals at all times, in peace and in war. The alternative approach is that of Lemkin, genocide. Not to protect people because of their individual rights only, but to protect them because they are members of a group, and the group is entitled to protections. In other words, Lemkin's idea is people don't get killed, aren't subject to mass atrocities because of the inherent individual qualities. They are killed because they are a member of a particular group that comes to be hated at a particular moment. And so the idea of genocide is not to protect the individual, but to protect the group and to ban and make criminal the killing of individuals because they happen to be members of the group with the intention of protecting the group. So every genocide is a crime against humanity, but not every crime against humanity is a genocide. Why not? Because to prove a crime against humanity, what you have to establish is the killing of a large number of individuals unlawfully. To prove a genocide, you have to prove that, but additionally you have to prove that the acts of killing took place 
with the intention of destroying a group. And that, as I've discovered in my work, is very difficult. But to simplify the matter, at the heart of the issue is a fundamental tension that touches all of us and raises the fundamental question, who am I? Am I an individual or am I a member of a group? Of course, we are all both. But how the law functions to protect us is a big and contested question. Now, there had been earlier attempts to kind of protect groups after, particularly after the Treaty of Versailles, I think. Article 93 of the Versailles Treaty required that Poland, and it's interesting how Poland becomes this incredible nexus of everything to do with this, um, that Poland protect those inhabitants who differed from the majority of the population in race, language, or religion. And the permanent International Courts of Justice opens in 1922. Uh, general principles of law recognized by civilized nations, which of course raises the question of what is a civilized nation and who defines what a civilized nation is. But there had been attempts to do this, but actually in protecting those groups in Poland, in many ways, it drew attention to right. those groups, and the whole idea of protection backfired. Right. Exactly like that. So what happens, again, go back even further, beyond 1939, to the summer of 1919. Poland wishes to be recognized as an independent state. So the Brits, the Americans, and the French, and others say, fine, 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 you can be an independent state if you want, but... In order to be an independent state, because on your territory these pogroms and acts of killings of minority groups have taken place, you have to give us guarantees that you will protect the rights of minorities. And that is then incorporated into a parallel treaty to the Treaty of Versailles. The Poles are pretty pissed off about it because they say rightly, why do we have to protect minorities when you, the British, are under no parallel similar obligation. Why are we being discriminated against? And uh, the politics being as they are, Poland is bound to accept that situation. And so you get the Polish Minorities Treaty. Now that creates a sense of backlash because minorities, Germans, Armenians, Ruthenians, Jews, whoever they may be, have the right to go to an international court to complain that the Polish authorities are not respecting their rights of language, of education, of treatment, and so on and so forth. But the Poles themselves have no equivalent rights. And so what it gives rise to, it sort of um, provokes a sense of deeper nationalism in Poland in the 1920s and the 1930s. This is an outrage that this is being imposed upon us. And one of the foremost nationalists was Julius Makarevich, who I discover after three years of doing research was the teacher of criminal law whose classes both Lauterpacht and Lemkin took. Now, I always rather like, I'm a teacher at UCL. I love the idea that a, that a teacher is sort of inspires his or her students uh, to do great things. But of course, the point about Makarevich is that it was a sort of reverse inspiration. Makarevich was an arch nationalist. Makarevich would not allow uh, excessive numbers of Ukrainians or Jews in his class. This was a time when teachers could decide on their own uh, who was going to be in their classroom. And indeed, he engages in conversations with both Lauterpacht uh, and Lemkin, in which he basically tells them that the minorities treaty arrangement is an outrage and an affront to Polish independence and to Polish sovereignty. And that informs, I think, the intellectual ideas of Lauterpacht and Lemkin, who then go to the next generation of rights. And their opponent, uh, opposing positions, uh, Nicholas, uh, uh, Hans Frank, uh, father of Nicholas, who you interview in the book, Hans Frank uh, argues very firmly for, uh, in Germany and then in Poland, for the non-interference in the international, in the internal affairs of foreign states, i.e. it is none of your business. So there's a retraction from any attempt at international law before Nuremberg. So states, are given, states insist on the freedom to do what they like to their citizens, including murdering them. Yeah, the heart of the issue is this concept of sovereignty, which we've all heard a lot about in the United Kingdom in the last three or four months. And it's the very same concept. And at the heart of the debate is this fundamental question. What external limits are or should be imposed on a state in relation to its activities, including its treatment of its own 
nationals. So back in 1935, Hans Frank, who's emerged from being Hitler's personal lawyer in the 20s, becomes Minister of Justice in Bavaria and then the head of the German Association uh, of Lawyers. And he is the major proponent of the idea that there shall be no external constraints at all on the sovereignty of a state. And in that context, Poland, to enhance its relations with Germany, shreds the minorities' treaties and opens the door to the kinds of um, behavior that followed a few years later. The point that James is bringing us to, in a sense, that is vital, is these issues are incredibly current today because what was achieved in 1945 is very much under challenge today, and we can maybe come yes. back to that. Let's, let's just talk about that, because what was at stake by the time, what was at stake at Nuremberg, and how did it change international law? Because they were, it was very, very important that the charges were formulated correctly, whether to include the word genocide or not, a number of charges against the people. There's a lot of argument before, and it's interesting, because of course Churchill wanted to just kill the lot. Uh, kill everybody, didn't he? He did. And it was the Americans. Roosevelt said, yeah. no, these people must be tried. Could you perhaps set up why it was important to try these people as war criminals? Well, as the war comes to an end, a great deal of work has been done over two or three years. Lauterpacht, in particular, has been working with Robert Jackson uh, since the 1941, American who becomes the American prosecutor, but who is President Roosevelt's attorney general and who's leading the charge for a new way forward, basic international rules enforced by international courts. And at Yalta, there is, of course, a tremendous debate about whether to just line them up and shoot them or to put them on trial. Churchill does not prevail. Stalin and Roosevelt have an alliance to create this victor's justice type of uh, trial. But then the question becomes, what are they going to be tried for? Um, we have a sort of limited number of rules in relation to war crimes that go back to the middle of the 19th century, but they don't cover the killing of civilians on a large scale, they don't cover concentration camps, they don't cover other kinds of persecutions, deportations, slave labor of Poles, and so on and so forth. And so there's this remarkable moment between about April 1945 and August 1945 where four countries come together, the British, the Americans, the French, and the Soviets, and they literally have to invent new crimes which will be used to charge the original 24 defendants at Nuremberg, of whom only 22, in fact, end up making it into the courtroom. And amongst the new crimes is the concept of crimes against humanity put into the Nuremberg Statute uh, following a meeting in Cambridge in, on July the 29th, 1945, between Lauterpacht uh, and Jackson. And then a few uh, weeks later, the concept of genocide gets incorporated at the instance of Raphael Limkin. And I've always wondered, so the indictment and the statute are put to the defendants in October 1945, and I've always wondered how it must have been for someone like Hans Frank, extremely articulate lawyer, very highly trained, highly cultured man, uh, a ma man who was a friend of Richard Strauss's, collector of wonderful works uh, of art. He's sitting in the defendant's dock, that picture that you all know, the two rows of defendants, and he gets the indictment. And there are these crimes that he's never heard of. And so obviously their defense is based in part on the fact that this is just an invention. This is just ex post facto justice. Doesn't, doesn't Maxwell Fife, a Scottish person, doesn't he blurt out the word genocide? He virtually blurts it out. Well, actually, it's good that you mentioned that. So Scot Scotland, Scot Scotland, a number of the members of the British team are, um, are Scottish. So the leading Scottish lawyer is David Maxwell Fife, Lord Kilmuir, who had been Attorney General uh, until the summer of 1945 when Labour won uh, the general election, surprisingly, and Hartley Shawcross becomes the new Attorney General. But Shawcross then brings Maxwell Fife in as his deputy. The Brits are against the concept of genocide. Lauterpacht, for different reasons, Lauterpacht is against the concept of genocide because he worries that the protection of the group will come to trump the protection of the individual. And you will replace uh, the tyranny of the state by the tyranny of the group. And looking around the world right now, that 
prediction uh, has certain legs. The British government is opposed to the concept of genocide because they are worried that the uh, people in the colonies will rise up against British oppression and argue they're being subject to uh, a genocide. And the Americans are against it because they are worried that blacks in the southern states uh, will also make arguments uh, in relation uh, to uh, genocide. So for several months, the British do not use the concept of genocide in their arguments until Lemkin gets to David Maxwell Fife. And on the 25th of June, 1945, uh, Maxwell, 25th of May, 1945, Maxwell Fife is cross-examining von Neurath, former uh, foreign minister uh, of, 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 of the Reich and protector of uh, Bohemia, and Maxwell Fife introduces British support for the concept of genocide, whilst Shawcross was back in London. And I suspect there was not a lot of consultation. Uh, but but, but Maxwell Fife was very big on the concept of genocide, and he came to know Lemkin, and there is correspondence between them. I hope you don't mind this technical stuff, because I think it's really important that we get the terminology right, and then uh, I'm coming to questions in a minute. But I'm going to ask you, Philippe, something personal now, because obviously you're an international human rights lawyer yourself, and you were taught by Lauterpach's son, and your grandfather, Leon Bultschultz, lived on the same street as the Lauterpack family, the east-west street of the title of your book. In 1939, he was part of a family of 80. In 1945, he was the only one that had survived. How can you write about this objectively? I'm a grandson. I'm not a child um, of my grandfather. I'm not, I'm not the son uh, of my grandfather or my grandmother. And I think with the, with the jumping of a generation, it's possible to open doors. Um, these were issues that were not talked about in our family, as I mentioned at the outset. And it was only in 2010, when I was 50 years old, that I had a first real conversation with my mother about all these issues. The invitation to Lviv prompted a uh, request by me to see my grandfather's papers. I'm sort of amazed, because I'm a curious person, that I had never asked to see my grandfather's papers and what was left. And it turned out that she had two little suitcases of papers with extraordinary materials in them. I was just amazed to see them. There was his, his expulsion order from Austria, um, the determination that he has made into a stateless person so that he can be uh, expelled. There's his Nazi passport issued by him, or his travel document, to enable him to be expelled. So this opened a sort of door in my imagination. And, and you have to remember that I'm a litigator, so I'm used to dealing with things that are painful and dark and horrible. And although this is personal, you sort of detach yourself uh, as you go into it. And the door that I opened led to some extraordinary discoveries. So in terms of the coincidences that uh, propel me. I, I'm very partial to coincidences. I think coincidences mean something. My wife, who's somewhere in this audience, I can't see her, thinks it's all a nonsense, and I'm, I oversell the notion of coincidences. But I, I think there is something there. So in the course of this research, I discover that um, there are remarkable connections between my family and that of the Lauterpack. Pause for a moment. My first teacher of international law at university was Ellie Lauterpacht, the only child of Hirsch Lauterpacht. He gave me my first job in the autumn of 1984. We did not know in 1984 that his father, Hirsch Lauterpacht, and my great-grandmother, Amalia Buchholz, were born on the very same street of the town of Zulkiev, just outside Lemberg. I, I, indeed, the street is East-West Street, Lembergerstrasse, hence the title in the book. And I carry on with the research. And then I discovered that my great-grandmother, who started off life on the same street as Hirsch Lauterpacht, ended her life on the same street as Lemkin's parents. You literally, I think, could not invent this stuff. In 1942, on September the 23rd, when she was 72 years old, she was transported from Theresienstadt to Treblinka, uh, and she walked off the platform and was gassed um, 15 minutes later. 
and the street that she walked down, the last street that she walked down, was Himmelfahrtstrasse, the street to heaven, the street that led from the railway platform to the gas chamber. And remarkably, two weeks later, Bella and Joseph Lemkin, the parents of Raphael Lemkin, walked down exactly the same uh, street and were gassed at Treblinka. So there's a sort of curious book ending that I was astonished by, that I who work in the field of crimes against humanity and genocide, as some uh, of the cases that I do, found myself to be connected to these individuals in ways that I could never have imagined. And Ellie and I, Ellie Lauterpacht and I laughed about it, that it was only 30 years after we had met each other that we came to understand there was this point of connection uh, between uh, the two of us. I want to ask you about the next generation. I want to ask you about what it's like to research it as a second, you know, as a, as a grandson. Um, because as well as this book, you've made a film that went with it called My Nazi Legacy, in which you interview... This is about the long-term effects of this. Is, it, is, this a, is the Nuremberg trial a, a full stop? Uh, what comes after it? Do, how much do we learn from that I event, that trial? And uh, what Philippe has done uh, is also speak to two sons of prominent Nazis, both based in Poland, um, Hans Frank's son, Nicholas, who carries a photo of his dead, hanged father in his wallet to remind himself that his father, a prominent Nazi, is dead. And Horst van von Wachter, who's the son of Otto van von Wachter, who's the governor of Galicia, who insists on still finding the good in his father, who insists that his father was uh, an individual who was trying to do his best un under, a, uh, 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 under a, a repressive regime. I, it is, it's a, a version of, I was, I'm trying not to say I was only obeying orders, but I've said it. So um, Philippe becomes friends with these two men and takes them back to um, Galicia and to Lemberg. And um, I, I just found it the most extraordinary thing because you have three children who have all been affected by this in various ways. And you have two people who acknowledge the evil and one who resolutely does not. And watching you in that film and in your book, I was astonished by your patience. Can I just take um, just the book for a second? Because there's to, to, to understand sort of my approach to this, very early on when I was doing the research, we were on holiday one summer and with a French friend, and she had with her another friend who was a psychoanalyst, who is a psychoanalyst. And I asked the psychoanalyst whether there was any psychoanalytical work done on the relationship, not between parent and child, but between grandparent and grandchild because I had a sort of hunch that there were ways in which things were communicated across the generations. The bigger point that I'm making is that what happens in year one continues to have consequences down the generations. It doesn't just stop, and it doesn't just stop when it's not talked about. Actually, I know this from my own work in international criminal law. When we were doing uh, the case for Croatia against Serbia on... Um, allegations of genocide at Vukovar, we were drafting the pleading called a memorial, and we started the pleading, we thought, well, we started in about 1986, because that's when this story really began, and we will tell the story from then. No, 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 said the government of Croatia. You will start the story in 1378. <laughs> and it sort of alerted me to the fact that you know, these things that are alleged to have happened have consequences over time. But the quote that I want to read, which was drawn, brought to my attention by this psychoanalyst in France in response to my question, was she said, you need to read the work of two Hungarian-French psychoanalysts, Maria Torok and Nicholas Abraham. And I read attentively their work, and I came across one quote from that, which I start the book with. What haunts are not the dead but the gaps left within us by the secrets of others. And I think what happens, or what their work says happens, is that there are ways in which the events in which a grandparent is involved get passed on not to the next generation, but to the next generation but one. And I've often wondered how that happens, and I have had a sense that that has happened in relation to 
things that happened to my grandfather, that he communicated things to me, not by the spoken word, not by the written word, but in other ways. Now, in relation to your question, that is relevant, because I think the immediate next generation, the child, faces a fundamental difficulty. Horst von Wechter adopts the position that he does, despite the fact that his father was indicted for the mass murder of half a million people, but was never apprehended and died under the custody and protection of the Vatican, that his father was a good and liberal man who did his best in difficult circumstances. And I think what he is doing is articulating, in a sense, the admirable view that we seek to find the good in our parent. Nicholas Frank, on the other hand, and he's in a minority, takes the alternative view. My father was a uh, criminal who deserved to be hanged. Nicholas constantly comes out with extraordinary lines. One of them was, he said to me, Philippe, I'm against the death penalty except in the case of my father, which is an extraordinary line. So uh, two sons are caught up in the immediacy of the relationship with a person that they knew. But I think a grandchild has a degree of distance. And a grandchild who's involved in litigation of international crimes of this kind is able to have a further distance in dealing with these issues. But how much is your career an act of redemption, an act of attempted redemption? Growing up, I did not um, have a burning sense of a desire for justice. I didn't want to become uh, a lawyer. I happened to do law by accident at university. I thought law at... Uh, the university we went to together was ghastly, ghastly It's a complete fib, Philippe. Um, I was at university no. with Philippe. He no, was the no. most promising lawyer of his generation, no, no, no. all right? It's just complete. <laughs> he, knows, he, knows, he knows the truth. He knows where the body... He knows the truth. But the reality is I had one teacher who truly inspired me, who taught me international law. And that opened the door. And I think what must have happened is the subjects he talked about in the class must have resonated either with things I had a sense about or with my imagination. But no one on my family had been to university on that side of the family. There were no lawyers, there were no connections, there were no contacts, there was no nothing. There was no one saying to me, oh, you will become a lawyer, oh, you will become an international lawyer, oh, justice is important. We didn't talk about justice in our family. So where it comes from and what inspired it comes back, I think, to... You would need to ask the question to a psychoanalyst rather than to me. Okay, well, let me ask you about now, though. How, how, since writing this book, since 2010, do you think you've become a different lawyer? I think I've become a different person. In what way? I think I have a much better understanding of what that generation went through. I'm sort of in awe of what that generation went through. You meet remarkable people like Inca Katz and Robbie Dundas, and you understand how lucky, in a certain sense, our generation has been in not having to face up uh, to these issues. So I've become much more recognizant uh, of that. And I think I've also become a, a more tolerant and open person. And I think, to illustrate that, I have not, in the first 53 years of my life, been partial uh, particularly to the evangelical Christian community. It's not that I'm against them, but I would not rush to their religious services. I would not get to know them particularly. And yet, by coming to know the person who, for me, is the central character outside of the main characters in the book, in, in this book, Elsie Tilney, I've come to understand that things are never what they seem. You sort of understand that as a lawyer. You understand that as a litigator. But don't ever... T take people as they seem on their face. Things are not what they seem. Elsie Tilney saved dozens and dozens of people. She never told a single person about what she had done. And but for the act of detective work that I became involved in, I would have not known that. And so it has reinforced my sense. And you wouldn't be alive. And I, well, I, I owe my existence. Actually, it's even better than that. I not only owe my existence to Elsie Tilney, but I owe my existence to Paul's letter to the Romans. It's pretty bonkers. <laughs> because Elsie Tilney came from a community in Norwich, England, 
the Surrey Chapel, which still exists today and which I have come to know very well. And I've been up once or twice a year, every year since I've discovered uh, this story. And that particular community had a pastor at the time, David Panton, who had a particular interpretation of chapter 10, verse 1 of Paul's letter to the Romans and a phrase which in their version has the words to the Jew first. And they were taught to believe that that imposed upon that community an obligation to not only respect, but to act to protect when threatened. Obviously, in order to convert the Jews to their particular view. And that line in Paul's letter to the Romans, and you find it in black and white in Elsie Tilney's letters, is what motivated her to do what she did, to, at considerable personal risk to herself, go from Paris to Vienna in July 1939 and meet a mother, two mothers and two children at the West Bahnhof station in Vienna and carry them back to London. Uh, to, 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 Paris. to Paris. And so, you know, you, you, you come to know that, and it, it is humbling, given an, uh, my own very, you know, limited good deeds by comparison that I do in relation to such a person, to imagine that one would have anything other than complete respect for such an individual, an individual of fearless independence and courage, and yet who, if I were to meet you know, 10 years ago would have met such a person, would have had a hello and whatever, and gone on and would have thought no more of it. So things are never what they seem. No, last question before the audience. Do you think we're in danger of losing a sense of, or losing the strength of the lessons of Nuremberg? I think we've forgotten. Um, and I think that what's happening in this country right now reflects the sense that a new generation is in charge that has no connection in a real sense with what happened. I don't think you can have a, an, an, an understanding and a sense of connection with what happened in the 1930s up until 1945 and support, as our current government does, the idea of shredding the Human Rights Act and disconnecting the United Kingdom's relationship to the European Convention on Human Rights, which was a direct product of the work of David Maxwell Fife, who was the principal drafter of the European Convention on Human Rights, supported by Hirsch Lauterpacht. And I also think that a government and a people with a real sense of connection to what happened back then could not possibly vote to leave the European Union, because warts and all, what the European Union has done is prevent those types of things from happening. David Cameron sort of said that in a belated, half-hearted, actually rather pathetic way, frankly. But the heart for me of the European Union and the body of institutions that have been created is about giving expression to the idea never again in Europe. And I'm not starry-eyed about the European Union. I'm not starry-eyed about the European Court or Convention uh, on Human Rights. But what you do is you fix it, you repair it, you change it over time. You don't ditch it. And as you will have seen, you've seen the film, you've seen me in a field in the Ukraine with hundreds of people dressed in Waffen-SS uniforms. I'm sorry to say this, it is just below the surface. And the idea that this could not reassert itself is wrong. It could reassert itself. I don't want to re-panic. I don't want to say it's about to all happen again. I don't think it is necessarily all about to happen again. But it is impossible to immerse yourself in the period in which I have immersed myself, coupled with spending extended periods of time in that part of the world, coupled with seeing what's going on in the United Kingdom right now, and not be deeply concerned about where Europe is heading. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Susie, yeah, 
Susie Vera, uh, time for questions. And uh, anybody got any questions? Yes, there's a gentleman here. And that means that the next question must be by a woman, because we've been very, very bad at taking questions from women. <laughs> I'm very concerned about a remark made in The Guardian by um, Lord Lester to the effect that we do not have a British constitution. And that could be said to be accurate, except that we were signed up to the European Treaty, which is a constitution, and we're about to um, lose that protection uh, of human rights, of employment rights. The primacy of European law is complained about all the time, but my God, it's a very essential protection. And if we're going to lose that, thanks to Brexit, which was a revolution about something else, it was a revolution by people who did not like an elite, and the people that Trump's appealing to in America who have lost their jobs, working class people in little cities and towns elsewhere, we are about to lose a very valuable layer of protection, I feel, and that could be extremely dangerous and is taking us back historically. Well, I, I, Anthony Lester has been a mentor of mine since I became a, a lawyer and an academic. Um, we dip, and, I, and I can't think of a person in this country who's done more for the protection of human rights uh, than Anthony. We both served on a government commission on a Bill of Rights and we departed uh, on, on, on a certain issue. Anthony, over a period, favoured something called a British Bill of Rights. Helena Kennedy and I opposed the idea on the commission and dissented from the majority report. And Anthony, I think, has now changed his position to our position, along with David Edward uh, here, in, here in Scotland. Because, Helena, because I think they've accepted that Helena and I recognised that the idea of a British Bill of Rights, so-called, or a UK Bill of Rights, was actually intended by proponents, mostly but not exclusively conservatives, to create a pretext to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights. And that's something I was fundamentally opposed to. I, 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 I'd say it's not about to happen. There is a possibility that it might happen. And this is a moment for real resistance. And that means each and every person in this room resisting, writing to your member of parliament, going out on marches and agitating in appropriate ways to make sure that whatever changes are made, the fundamental protections respecting the rights of an individual are maintained. Uh, I don't think that there is going to be uh, a British written constitution. Uh, that is not around the corner, but I do want to repeat something that I said last night. Uh, maybe this is the moment with this question said. So I think Scotland is uniquely important at this moment in relation to the well-being of the United Kingdom and the well-being of Europe and the European Union. And you should not imagine for a moment that Scotland does not have tremendous power now the fact that Theresa May came to Scotland as her first trip and talked about a precious union spoke very loudly about what she is not willing to lose in relation to Brexit, repeal of the Human Rights Act and various other things. And my own view is there is everything to play for in relation to Brexit and these matters in relation to constitutional rights and the Human Rights Act in relationship with the European Convention on Human Rights. So that is not, this is not the moment to lie down and just say, oh, it's all over. It is not. The debate has just begun, and I think each of us who care about it have a responsibility to be very, very active and to agitate. Thank you very much. Okay, over here. Yes, there's a lady there. Hurrah, a lady. Good. Sorry, we've got into such a lot of trouble for not having enough questions from women, and here is one. Good. Um, I wonder what your view is as a Jew about the um, Israeli attitude towards the West Bank and Gaza. Um, are, is Israel guilty of crimes against humanity or, or genocide? Um, perhaps you could sure, comment sure, on that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a really interesting question because actually your question is, is pa packed with issues that I would have to think about. So in what capacity am I answering that question? Am I answering that question, A, as a human being, B, as a lawyer, C, as a Jewish person, and what if my answers to your questions differ depending on the capacity or the context in which I answer that question? So I, I can't answer the question just as a lawyer. I can't answer the question 
just as a, someone who happens to be Jewish or someone who happens to be British or ha someone who happens to live in London or member of the citizen of the European Union or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I answer it as a human being. And as a human being, I believe that every state in the world is subject to the same obligations under international law. And those obligations include obligations in relation to human rights, crimes against humanity, genocide, and so on and so forth. And that obviously includes the state of Israel. And I've been very clear in expressing views that where Israel has crossed lines, it must be held to account. And if Israeli individuals cross lines, they are to be held to account. But equally, Palestinians who cross lines are to be held to account, and when there is a Palestinian state, as there will be and should be, Palestine, too, will be held uh, to account. So I don't, you know, whether I'm British, Jewish, French, a lawyer, a non-lawyer, whatever it is, as far as I'm concerned, Israel is subject to the same standards as every other state. The writings that I did on lawless world on Britain and Iraq apply equally in relation to the acts uh, of uh, Israel. The fact that I'm British does not stop me saying that um, the United Kingdom illegally invaded uh, Iraq. No difference at all. What I'm concerned about right now, and, I, and, that is, and, and that has emerged, you asked me before, what is different? What is different is that it has been very difficult for me in writing this book to not feel a connection with my grandfather and my grandmother and what they went through. And the book, you'll see, those of you who've read the book, that I'm, I'm, I, I oscillate. I, intellectually, I'm with Lauterpacht. I believe that one should fundamentally protect the rights of a human being because they are an individual human being. And I worry about Lemkin's idea. But I recognize that we all have tribal instincts. We are all part of groups. We're all part of communities. And that's a normal part of life. And I, amongst other groups I am a member of, happen to be a member you know, of a group known as Jews. And what I think I worry about is that it seems to me there is a disproportionate focus on the wrongdoings of Israel. We know Israel has broken laws. We know Israel has violated human rights obligations. We know those things have gone on. But have Israel's violations been worse than those of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Iran, the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia? And, and where are the calls for boycotts and divestment in relation to those other countries? So one has to ask oneself the question, why is there that particular focus? Now, I think that for many people, the focus is genuinely a belief. They're just deeply offended by what Israel is doing. But I think for some people, there is something else at play. And it becomes a useful stalking horse. So in answer to your question, I think there's a very difficult balancing exercise. I would treat Israel and any Jewish perpetrator no better or no worse than anyone else. They should be held to exactly the same account and exactly the same standard as a Brit, as a Catholic, as a Protestant, as a Muslim. And I think the group thing becomes very difficult when we start homing in and targeting but I appreciate your question. Thank you very much. We have one for one more. Just going to take this man here, this man here, and then we'll have to stop. So, William, stand by. This man here. This, this gentleman here. Yep, thank yeah. you. Thanks very much. Um, can pick up your comment about Act to Prevent, take that forward a bit, because you were discussing earlier the protection given by um, crimes against humanity and genocide in international law, which in a way is the ability to prosecute after the event. So in theory, in principle, what you'd want is um, the act to prevent, um, to actually stop those things happening in the first place. And of course, we do have responsibility to protect from 2005, but that is incredibly problematic because of the issues of sovereignty, which you referred to, but also the rather incredibly fraught track record of liberal interventionism against states that um, took action against their citizens and the problems of other international community trying to intervene. So what do you think could be a viable mechanism that was proactive in trying to stop these crimes in the first place but wasn't subject 
to the enormous problems of liberal interventionism and the sovereignty issues. So, so the theory behind, I mean, if you, if you go on to, if you're interested in this, go on to YouTube and watch the speech that Robert Jackson gives to open the Nuremberg trial. It's probably the single greatest legal speech uh, that's been given in any, any international court. Where he basically says, we are now going to prosecute these things to make sure they never happen again. Well, we know they have happened again. The judgment of Nuremberg included no reference to the concept of genocide. Lemkin described that as the blackest day of his life, worse even than the day he found out his parents and entire family uh, had been murdered in, in sort of occupied uh, Poland. So he spends the next two years pushing, basically as a one-man effort, a convention on the prevention and punishment of genocide. And that is adopted in 1948. It's the first modern human rights treaty. It's really the, the father, the mother, whatever you want to call it, of all our modern human rights uh, treaties. And I often get asked, what's the evidence for Lee that the uh, Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide um, has ever stopped a single act of killing? And that is a really tough question um, because I don't have that evidence. I do a lot of work with governments um, and uh, I can pretty much with certainty tell you that governments, when they're taking decisions, don't sit around and say, oh, well, we'd really like to kill all of those people in that particular village, but actually we better not do it because if we do it, we'll be subject to the Convention on Prevention of Genocide and we'll be punished. Life just is not like that. There are people in this room who spent a lot of time working on Yugoslavia and the idea of, you know, Tudjman and Karadzic and various others doing certain things. There's evidence that what governments, ministers and prime ministers and presidents do is they craft their language in ways that allow them to uh, foresee the exclusion of punishment. I mean, the only government in the world that has left a paper trail uh, in relation to genocide that is clear is the Nazi German government of 1933 to 1945. And the lesson of Nuremberg is, well, if you're going to commit crimes against humanity and genocide, don't leave bits of paper around saying that you're going to do these kinds of things. So there's a certain skepticism. And I think the answer to your question is, this is a long-term project. People forget. As I've, the book came, only came out in the summer, and I've probably done 30, 35 talks about it in here in the US and France, various other countries. And every event that I've gone to, you, 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 this, this, this question comes up. And relatedly, people are amazed that the concept of genocide and crimes against humanity has only existed for 70 years. So I would say to you, as I say to my students, this is a 500-year project. We're not going to see the benefits. Rather, you know, the crimes of you know, manslaughter and murder have not eradicated the acts of murder and manslaughter, and crimes against humanity and genocide will not as such eradicate. And so what we're looking for is a change of consciousness over time, and we're talking very long time periods. What happened in 1945 was a revolutionary moment. Until 1945, states were absolutely sovereign. The state of which you were a national could do whatever it wanted to you. That changed in the autumn of 1945. And that is no longer possible. And right now, we need to safeguard that change because it's under threat. And once we've safeguarded it, we just carry on wittering on about the human rights and genocide and crimes against humanity and essentially have to design structures, I don't have time to get into the details of the question, to implement that commitment. But it's a multi-century project. It's not going to change overnight. And there was never any prospect that new norms would be adopted uh, in 45, 46, 48 and suddenly effect an instantaneous change in human behaviour. That was not going to happen. Thank you, Philippe. Now we have, no, we have a, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry about the lack of jokes tonight. Um, but uh, no, we, we can't can have that, jokes. Now we, we can, can have, have a moving jokes. comic, uh, sort of semi-comic, but also incredibly moving. Susie, can we, can we give uh, uh, um, uh, uh, William a, a microphone? Uh, this is Frederick Hood's brother. Who, this is part of the tradition of this event, which we're going to end with. So over Time to you. for the eccentricities.
Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, it, it's really an honor to be here with my wife, Sophie, and children to represent my mother, father, and siblings, um, here to present the fedora to Philippe. But before I do that, I'd just like to thank Jane Henderson and the full team at Walter Scott, who are absolutely wonderful, the Edinburgh Book Festival team, Nick Barley and Alan Little, the new chairman, for all they do to keep Frederick's memory alive. The subjects that were discussed tonight, the periods of history, are subjects and periods of history that Fred studied and was absolutely interested in in a major way. So that's terrific. Without further ado... Uh, but just before you do that, can I make a suggestion? Yes, Because since when I was a child, I always dreamt of being crowned. <laughs> it, it, it would be an honor to crown you. I want to move my chair forward, but in particular, I want, I want James, who I have known. <laughs> Since 19... I want James to be involved in the act of coronation. Well, we'll, we'll share it. We'll share it. This is a, this is a pathetic attempt of Philippe uh, okay. to, to want, prove his authority. When the Queen was crowned, when the Queen was crowned, oh, she, other she was sitting. Yes, she is sitting, yes. I suppose you want me to anoint you yes, as well. Okay. <laughs> James, there's a walking, walking stick you can use as a sword yeah. to... Her. I know. <laughs> But we, we put this in a photo sit, moment, and I have to but it's, it's William's uh, yeah. duty, so I will hold I'm going to look at this lady right in front of me, and I'm going... No, no, I think we'll both do it. We'll both, we'll both do it. I, I realise this is quite a weird way to end an event, but it's been specially made for Philippe. And there we go. So, thank you all very much yeah. for coming. And please thank the wonderful Philippe Sands. I'll carry the box. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Ed Book Fest.